Well, hello, and welcome to the SNW The Pulse podcast. This is the sports media show, which covers everything from insurance, image rights, legal matters, to tax liabilities. I'm Pete Fairchild, tax partner and head of the sports media and entertainment team, and I'm delighted that joining me today is Mo Pashrika, solicitor and head of sports and media at Mackerel Solicitors. In this episode, we will be discussing what financial impact and recovery COVID-19 has had on sports professionals. Mo, hello. Hi, Pete. How are you? Very well, thank you. And your good self? Not too bad, thank you. Thank you for having me. A pleasure, as always. Well, unprecedented times sort of is uh, feels like a, a slight understatement, really, given the impact that COVID-19 has had on sort of world affairs um, and the purpose, of course, of our discussion today is to drill down into a couple of team sports and sort of compare and contrast how different people have been affected, I would suggest, um, in vastly different degrees. Um, and with that in mind, I was proposing that we start off with professional rugby union, where, of course, the typical Premier League player earns probably just under £100,000 per year during what, of course, is an increasingly short career, given the amount of pain and punishment that the body goes through. So they're not uh, having that longevity that perhaps they once did. And just to pick out a couple of quite startling statistics from an article that was uh, made in the uh, Telegraph a week or two back, in that as of the 30th of June 2020, more than 50 players found themselves out of contract and a large proportion of those were negotiating new deals back in March. Then, of course, we have lockdown, and nearly all of those negotiations were put on hold, and some players, sadly, had provisional contract offers rescinded. As the pandemic bites further, club finances are squeezed, so fewer decent opportunities are available. And I think it's fair to say that some of the fortunate few have found new clubs, but most find themselves on short-term deals for the rest of this current season, but on reduced wages, and the remainder are waiting and hoping and crossing their fingers for something to come up. So that's all quite surprising, and um, I did note that the Professional Players Federation research had found that 95% of rugby players will need a second career, and around 50% of those will experience financial difficulties within five years of retirement. And all this, of course, Mo, is occurring before the Premiership clubs decided between themselves to impose a general salary cut of around 25%. So, and it's not a deferral, this, is it? It's, it's an actual cut. So this is really going to hit hard. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hit hard. Um, there is There are lots of considerations to, to kind of all parties. Which we have, as, you, as you've mentioned, um, in particular around players, had to had to advise certain players on their futures, and then uh, what appears to have been uh, you know, no future, or being forced into a future whereby uh, they know that they're going to be you know, going into with a reduced salary. Um, and in some cases, we've been dealing with a club looking at, um, at their new kind of employment contract for the for the player, the new playing contract for the club, and. During those conversations, the, the club has revealed that we're probably likely to you know, take another wage cut or defer or some sort of reduction in the next four to five months. 
um, which, which from our perspective um, and from the players' perspective, puts them, squeezes them into that into that corner more more than they've, they've ever been. Um, highlights the requirement for them to think very carefully about the financial uh, their financial position and their financial advice going forward, and has necessitated really the need for for them to obtain legal advice either from us or, or to go to UP and, and have a chat and think about how does this affect you know, their cash flow kind of forecasting for their future, how does this affect their, their current outgoings and, and, and their lifestyle in, in, in the coming, coming years. Yeah, exactly that. And uh, the cash flow forecasting points is one mo that you make very well. We've had dialogues with a range of sports people talking about potentially cutting back on their savings for a particular month when wages are not what they were, or if they planned um, a big capital purchase, big outlay, then maybe that has to be deferred, postponed, or even cancelled just to cope because they've got mouths to feed or mortgages to pay. And, uh, you know, this is a very difficult situation to manage. And I think it does bring home the fact that, and thank goodness they do this, the Rugby Professionals Association have these development programmes, don't they, which I think are have, have always been vital. Yes, yeah. But my goodness, at the moment, they're absolutely crucial. And, of course, these are designed to prepare and educate players for life after rugby. And, again, just as I like numbers, being an accountant, picking out some statistics, in 2010, 30% of the RPA members engaged in off-the-field development um, and in 2020, this had reached 91% of RPA members. So, you know, it, thankfully, the rugby community is one in which they recognise the issues and, you know, they are determined to roll their sleeves up and hopefully do something about it. Yeah, I think, I think you're spot on. I think the in, in some ways, there's certain sports that have quite well adapted to, to helping their their athletes transition across and we've always spoken previously about um, some, some of the great stuff the RPA are, have put in place to assess to assist um, players as they consider their life after their professional sporting life and if there was ever a time for those um, mechanisms and procedures and processes uh, to be put in place and utilised and considered and this is certainly the time and there's definitely comparisons when you can when you look at other sports who are who have not either by their own governing body or uh, players union have developed um, themselves to the level of understanding what life could be like off sport and assisting assisting uh, those stakeholders who ultimately um go out there put their body bodies on the line to deliver us entertainment you know in, in sporting arenas and I think what we're starting to also see is other sports look at, you know, for example, English rugby, um, look at look at our, look at the RPA and actually take some take some lessons from from what has been put in place. Indeed, and people have this, I think, misconception, if I can put it that way, that a lot of professional sports people, rugby players, perhaps in particular, once their career is over in terms of active playing of the game, will then just go into some sort of business development role or similar in business. Yeah. Um, it's it's certainly not, in my experience, uh, working with several players who've tried to do that. You know, the, the, There's not a, a queue of 
uh, open doors that they can choose to walk through to get sort of career number two underway. But it just strikes me that you know, players that leave the game, they're just not losing their rugby income, but it's an entire way of living that for many, many years has provided enormous structure to their daily activities and has given them a ready-made social life. And all of a sudden, you've got this complete disconnect from the changing room banter, and they find themselves in the big wide world with bills to pay and income that's just stopped. So it's that that, that transition is is so vital. Um, so any rugby player that is listening to this, and I, I, I would just really uh, encourage you to really try and focus and work on getting some additional skill sets and uh, working on your outside interests. I, I, I totally echo echo sentiments, Pete. I think ultimately, um, for any any rugby player listening, even if they don't know where to go, um, both you and I are, you know, have good contacts and links with a number of organisations and, and, and can highlight that, that path forward. So I think even if sometimes it can be difficult to, to know who, who to speak to, what has worked well, what hasn't worked well, and I think I'd speak for you, if you don't mind, that you know we would both um, welcome and, and discuss and uh, entertain those kind of discussions with prospective um, clients and existing clients of ours. Completely endorse that. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're here to help and pass on the knowledge and the contacts that we have built up. So not tremendously great for the rugby community, it seems. If we can now turn our attention to the footballers, um, now, of course, when COVID first uh, became, you know, a, an extremely serious matter, and just as lockdown was occurring, you know, Birmingham City, for example, was one of the mm. first clubs that asked players earning over, I think it was six thousand pounds a week, to defer half of their wages for the next four months. Mm-hmm. Hearts in Scotland then asked all staff to take a fifty percent pay cut, um, and I think, and you'll know more about this than I probably know, in terms of the contractual position my understanding is that under scottish law um there is a clause in players contracts that says if um he if the scottish fa suspends a season then the club does have the right to postpone or do something with salaries however contrasting that with english law south of the border players contracts as i understand it do not contain a force majeure type clause and um therefore it is almost impossible I think for an English club to impose a wage reduction or deferral No you're you're absolutely spot on there is certainly a difference between um, being being a player for a Scottish football team and and an English football team Um, Scottish football contracts do contain clauses that that allow allow clubs to, to permit that kind of those kind of actions but from an English law point of view um, any variation deduction um, of, of the player's salary will require the consent of, of the player it cannot be unilateral um, and we've we had a, a number of inquiries um, during the period of early April into May players contacting us and, and before before they were issued with the the templates of you know the, the wage, the wage deferrals and 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 and, uh, and and the like. We were we were contacted by a number of, of players who who called us up and existing clients and, and and new players 
who just didn't understand or know whether they could be forced into a position with their club. Um, and they also didn't know, you know, whether by saying no, how that would how that would impact impact them in the future. Um, and we started seeing, you know, certain tensions rise. We had, a, you know, a, a quite a well-known Premier League clients about turn around and say, I'm not sure why I should uh, make a, a, why I should reduce my wage. I pay 45% of tax. Um, that's going to, to helping the NHS. So there were lots of, lots of um, comments that we received during that period of time. But the ultimate answer is that no variation, no deduction could take place without that player's consent. And that did come to surprise to, to players and some agents that I spoke to. They thought they could be forced into a certain position. And one, one thing I would add is that FIFA did not necessarily help themselves um, by coming out and issuing their guidelines and, and uh, in respect of, of this kind of scenario. Um, they appeared to say within their guidelines that they would support um, a club if they were going to impose a unilateral uh, reduction in in, in mm. the players' wage, and which basically flies in the face of English employment law. There was no consideration from a domestic law point how that that would work, and clearly, um, any club looking to try and do that would be first firstly in breach of, of English employment law, and secondly, there would certainly be uh, something looked at from a, a court of arbitration for sport perspective if there was a, a regulatory claim. Um, so it was, it was a very obviously challenging time, but ultimately the, the position remains that their players' wage cannot. And if, if you are a player listening and you feel like you've been forced into a certain position, your club cannot change your wage unless you've consented to that. Thanks for that, Mo. And from an academic perspective, therefore, I'm just sort of thinking aloud. I'm not aware that there was any such cases, but just to make the point. If a club was to impose a blanket wage reduction, despite the fact that some players were not agreeing, then presumably, given what you've just said, the club themselves are leaving themselves potentially open to some later litigation. Absolutely, and um, um, you know, something that we something that we have actually discussed with our clients, where they felt they were going to be going down that road and looking to explore. With our, with our sports team here as to what that route looks like if they were going to challenge um, that um, that particular course of action. So um, we quickly obviously saw um, many other clubs take a, a much more, a very, well, we saw a variance of approaches really. Certain clubs look to try and uh, build uh, a, a, and establish a principle with their, their team captain and hopefully then the first team would follow. And we saw other clubs try to do it on a much more ad hoc basis. Um, so there was there was there was a you know a variance of, of, of methods that we saw that um, ultimately you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, clubs would open themselves up to a litigious front if they were looking to force their, their players to take a specific wage reduction and and ultimately um, the other aspect of this is that as football players and clubs they are participants um, under the under the regulations of the football association, and it is possible, therefore, for a player to to take a club for unpaid wages and, and take a claim for unpaid wages at the FA. That's a relatively cheaper way because there is no fee for issuing a, a, a claim with the football association. 
Um, it's called a Rule K arbitration. It's a private uh, court hearing. And um, that, that was one way we were certainly exploring with certain players that if they were going to either not be paid their full wage or there was any risk, that would be our strategy in terms of forcing the club's hand. Well, and if successful at that litigation, players would, in that situation, presumably be able to claim for unpaid wages. And it's my understanding that the FIFA rules even class a change in the contract terms as grounds for termination. So could, in effect, a player, in theory, simply walk away from the club? In theory, yeah, absolutely. Um, as as you as you quite rightly say, um, there are certainly grounds for that, and um, one one of the key elements that arose during this early period of, of the lockdown and, and the impact of COVID nineteen um, was the, just the tension between certain players and clubs, and where there was an underlying tension that existed already. This this kind of the, the, the kind of the feeling that many of my clients received from their clubs um, wasn't overwhelmingly um, positive in the sense there was a, a sense of a kind of very proactive kind of discussion. And um, many of my clients were unfortunately dealing with clubs who um, could simply say, "This is what we need to do. Otherwise, there is no other option for us. We don't know what we're going to do about keeping gear, etc." So there was a lot of other external pressure. Um, placed on on players, and they didn't really know where to turn. And until we were able to advise them, actually, you have a, a fairly strong legal argument here, and you could look to take the club down a certain route. And it, it kind of opened up the door for for lots of conversations as to how they want to strategize their their career going forward. Mm, gosh, well, in a practical sense, what. I certainly saw lots of in March and certainly April and even in May was many of my footballer clients contacting me having received their monthly uh, pay packets and were saying, gosh, it's dropped considerably. My club Mm. have obviously uh, made a mistake. Can you please get on to the HR and payroll departments and get things put correct? There seemed to be a lack of or grasp of the understanding of the two distinct component parts of their contracts, one of which, of course, is the guaranteed weekly wage that they're always entitled to receive. But, of course, there is the performance-related bit that um, you know was, was just non-existent because they weren't out playing games, winning matches, scoring goals, and receiving those bonuses. And uh, that was uh, quite a repetitive conversation to have, but I was pleased to have it because... As we said earlier on with the rugby players, you could then mm. engineer a conversation around structuring cash flow. Yeah, and I, I'm assuming it probably came as a surprise to many of your players when they realised, mm. actually, um, I think I might have been underpaid or um, what does this mean? And many of them may not have, have kind of really realised where they sat at a base level um, within their own contracts and actually... This period of time for, for us, together with their agents, uh, has, has been has been a time of reviewing you know, certain player contracts that you know, they hadn't really taken the time to either get you know, properly reviewed in the first place, either by a legal sports lawyer or uh, someone with your expertise, Pete, to, to look from a tax perspective and a, and a cash flow perspective with your team, um, and generated those you know, what what you've said were really good discussions as to 
as to what it means for them now if they were not going to get those bonuses, um, how it does affect their lifestyle, uh, and and so forth going forward. Yeah. Thankfully, of course, in the footballer cases, it was more of a uh, cash flow, you know, the deferral of the bonus performance part of their contracts. And once the season resumed, then all that sort of thing caught up. Mm. But it's just dealing with matters in the interim that just did take some management. But one thing I noticed, Mo, that came out of those dialogues with the players, as I say, it was an extremely useful conversation, was the fact that maybe for the first time, given that they was at home, they had a little bit more time on their hands than normal. They obviously clearly weren't doing club training. I'm sure most of them were doing what they could in the back in the backyard. But um, I noticed quite an uptake in the interest players were genuinely taking in their own financial position. In the past, I'm sure you've seen it as well, it is often the case that parents or other family members or indeed friends or everything is just left to the agent to deal with but because they were being hit themselves in the pockets and they had the time on their hands that they weren't used to, I found more clients reaching out just for advice and a general sort of arm of comfort wrapped around them to say that, you know, this is what it is and we can help you through it and it will come back and get better again. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with, with everything you've said. I think we found we found that actually the relationship we we have with certain clients, um, especially at that time of the year, as you know, Pete, like it's a really difficult time of the year sometimes to get hold of, of players and, and their agents. Um, mm-hmm. Towards the end of the season, you don't they're, they're focusing obviously on their objectives, and you don't really want to be in that period period of you know, disturbing them and, and and kind of following up on on saying, oh, actually, this is something we wanted to discuss with you for a while and we haven't actually managed to get around to it, um, which which for many of our clients, they were able to take the time and say, actually, you know that, that, that comment you mentioned about going and seeing a financial advisor, talking about cash flow, maybe looking at my contract, got a bit of time now, can we can we have a look at it? Um, and it did spark that, those kind of, those, that, that level of interest that we have never really seen before. Um, and, and my hope is that that continues and that we learn from from that and and that um, kind of attitude towards um, a player's kind of attention, their legal and financial uh, agreements and, and processes and, and advisors um, is something that we can take from this period where they can really ultimately, you know, I had a player turn around to me and say, well, actually now I, <laughs> in many ways, turn around and said, I realise kind of, what you're all about, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Not just not just a pretty face drafting the documents. So yeah. it was kind of a case of, no, actually, I really, I really do get get the full kind of service from 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 us, as opposed to just being so siloed and reactive to their certain issues. We we're able to really provide that that, that you know that, that full advisory service that, that you provide too with your clients, Pete. And I think that's. The, that's the thing that really transcended that time for us. Yeah, and I think undoubtedly it's made the client-advisor relationship much stronger as a result of those conversations. So one slight positive that's come out of the pandemic. But just to touch on another uh, issue, Mo, that Mm. has caused many headaches and worrying times for players and clubs is, of course, the contracts for a professional footballer 
uh, terminates usually on the 30th of June, doesn't it, every year yeah. uh, when they when their contract ceases. And there was this uncertain period whilst the season was continuing as to you know where players stood if they had the situation where their contract was running down to the 30th of June 2020. Now, it was made known that to help clubs and players through this uncertain period, then terms of the contract could be extended until the season concluded. Um, but what, what, what sort of client experiences and engagements did you have on, 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 that, on that particular matter? Well, I, I think you, one, of, one of the key things, that, one of the key questions we were asked was what's going to happen right at the beginning of, of this period. And there was obviously a, a, a time delay in, in many senses from a, a governing body and, and, and FIFA's perspective on, on how they should look at uh, seasons and whether certain 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 leagues would continue or not. And we have players you know, internationally. We have, we've got two or three players in, in the Belgian league, for example, who um, their season just, just finished. Um, so I had lots of lots of my colleagues looking at and working with with our clients across the borders, but here in, here from an English point of view, um, yes, the thirtieth of June, twenty twenty, is the normal scenario where these contracts expire, um, and ultimately, um, you know, we saw a lot of, uh, we still saw issues, despite the fact um, quite early on with the thirtieth of June, twenty twenty dates, for example, during. You know, the period of April and May, uh, certain clubs uh, put their players on furlough, and um, but within those furlough letters, which you know had been circulated by the Premier League and the Football League, um, there were certain elements that clubs could, could amend, um, and we see we had seen some clubs that you know allowed for, for players. Uh, most most of them allowed for players to receive their their deferred payments where they where they contract ended um, but many of them any of those other letters we saw failed to really address where you know a player maybe transport maybe trans- transferred before the third payment the payment date or what happens now on loan so we had a number of different questions coming our way um, and even with contract extensions we were negotiating with uh, we, we actually assisted a few clients with short-term contract extension, so they could they could see out their their period of time. But there was a, a discussion very early on as to where do I stand on the 30th of June 2020? Can I just walk out? Um, and mm. they were able, that, you know, that the position was they they, they could. Um, and and the real question and came down to was financially, what does that look like for that individual player? Assessing their own personal circumstances. Um, what does it mean to them moving to, to another team, um, and where are the doors kind of open for, for the future? Um, so it was, a, it was a very very interesting time with a number of questions fired at us. And um, if, it, if there was ever a time for something like this to happen in and around this period, combined with its effect on the transfer window, um, there's certain, certainly many lessons for not just uh, clubs but also the governing bodies to, to learn from. How, how these scenarios should play themselves out, and in the future, I expect they're actually to actually the, you know, the contracts uh, going forward should hopefully look to reflect this period of time to ensure we don't have um, some of these questions uh, and, and levels of uncertainty raised. And hopefully, that will be something that we, we see picked up and reflected going forward. Mm. And did you receive many inquiries about? 
agent contracts at the same time yeah. and whether if there was a, a cessation, for example, of a representation agreement, uh, how that would uh, impact both the uh, agent's commission if, for example, Absolutely. a contract was extended? Yes, we did. And we did. And, you know, I think from from our point of view, obviously, as, as you all know, um, the agent's position depend, depended entirely on the wording of the relevant representation contract. But, you know, typically, typically there were, you know, different different payment structures um, that they, they are they receive it, how they receive their money. So, you know, there's lump sum payments on set dates or there's a percentage of the player's guaranteed income uh, for that particular season or you get a combination of, of the above. Um, and in relation to in relation to the lump sum payments on certain dates, as long as there wasn't anything conditional, um, that seemed to be that seemed to be quite secure. Um, and ultimately from an agent's point of view, we were asked by a number of, of, of our clients as agents to assess uh, their representation contracts, their joint representation contracts with the clubs, um, looking at whether um, there's any any possibility um, for them to entitle them to any extra commission, for example. Mm. So whether um, whether the rep contract includes extra payments linked to their players' appearance in certain number of games. Um, obviously, all of that was... Uh, on the premise at that time as to whether we would actually have you know, the season resuming. And to certain agents it did and certain agents it didn't. Um, and, and also we had some really interesting conversations with clients, with, with agents about interest and late payment of interest. We had a number of our clients coming to us and saying, well, if I don't get paid, I haven't got an interest clause in my, my representation contract. What, what does that mean? Um, mm. And unless, unless it had been expressly excluded, Agents will, will be able to re, you know, recover interest on, on um, under an, an English law um, act that allows them to get an interest at eight eight percent above the Bank of England's base rate. Um, okay. So so there's, there there was there was an interesting conversation in and around that. Um, you know, especially if there was no it was an absence of a specific provision in relation to their interest. Um, and quite coincidentally, whilst I mentioned earlier. Um, where players were considering, and we mentioned about unpaid wages and what action they could take, and maybe Rule K proceedings was something they could go down, which was, as I said earlier, was the FA dispute resolution kind of mechanism. Um, it's a very similar conversation we had then with with players, who oh, sorry, with agents who would then say to us, "Well, is there a way that I can I can uh, you know, push push this along if a club is not going to to want to." Be forthcoming in their payment. How do I how do I strategize myself for the future if I'm not going to be paid what has been set out in my contract? And we were able to advise them on our experience on, on issuing rule K proceedings um, and, and how that and how that how that would go forward. There's obviously a very commercial balance to it, as you'll appreciate, Pete, because you know the relationship that they have with clubs is key to it, key to their their expertise. So. Um, mm. There was a real balance in many of those conversations that, that were to be had between agents and clubs to ensure that clubs are looking to fulfil. And one of the other kind of elements to this whole process was clubs would have turned around to a few of my clients who are agents and have said, well, yeah, early on in the lockdown period, we're not we're not quite sure about where we are financially as a club. 
um, and lots of clubs. And there's obviously a conversation separately to be had about the actual financial position of clubs you know, after this period of time and whether certain clubs will survive um, and, and, and so forth. I think the, the, the interesting conversation that we had with our clients from an agency point of view is, okay, are you being given some indication as to whether the club is unlikely to meet their financial obligations to you? Um, and if so, what do we need to get in place? What do we need to get ready to ensure uh, we protect your position? Phil's in many ways, it's um, the perfect storm. Um, I was talking to some agents last week who were saying that having done some deals, not just very recently, but actually a little bit before then, they was aware that clubs' payments had been made to the FA Clearinghouse, but mm. because of the fact that the FA themselves were short-staffed, there was yeah. this backlog yeah. developing of agents' payments through the Clearinghouse system. Have you had much involvement with agents are yeah. screaming for their money well um that definitely existed prior to lockdown so i'm not sure it was a relatively new issue um i've, I've had many clients of mine who, who are agents who have said um the yes, and have made reference to the fa clearinghouse not being quick enough to process payments to them um but yeah absolutely from 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 our, our client's point of view um they they have they've had issues with we're getting responses, even actually just general advice during this period of time. Something I have to say is that I don't, they haven't really been able to get the, the maybe necessarily the support because, as, as you quite rightly mentioned, certain you know, governing bodies or, or unions, not everyone is maybe working full time. Certain people are furloughed, they're short staff, the capacity level, for example, is, is, has been affected. So, um, yeah, we've, we've seen that too. Gosh. Did you have, Mo, any further sort of closing remarks? Because we've really gone through the areas and uh, topics that I would like, that I had planned to cover. Um, not, not really. I think just something to say that you know, for any uh, players or agents, clubs who are, who are listening, um, that right now, Obviously, assessing the financial impact of COVID-19 um, is a difficult one to say. Is we you know still during this this whole pandemic, but um, I think it's something that has been very telling from our clients and what we have been able to work particularly well with them. And I'm sure it was something you're able to echo, Pete, is that the requirement and and the the value of your professional advisor during this period cannot cannot really be understated. I think a lot of um, the feedback we have got during this period has been, I'm, I'm just thankful for like, being there and being able to pick up the phone. Um, so I think the important thing for players and agents listening is that, yes, you, there are uh, specialists who are able to pick up, the phone, pick up the phone and listen and help you and advise you, even during what is probably going to be one of the most uncertain periods in, in, our, in our lifetime. Well, I couldn't have summed that up better myself. That, I think, really concludes our episode today on the financial impact of COVID-19 and its effect on sports professionals. Mo, thank you so much for your very valued contribution and sharing your thoughts and expertise. And thank you, of course, to our listeners for tuning in. All references and links spoken about in this episode can be found in the episode show notes. Never miss an episode 
subscribe to our show if you haven't already done so and please rate and review us in the app store until next time many thanks and goodbye This SNW The Pulse podcast is of a general nature and is not a substitute for professional advice. No responsibility can be accepted for the consequences of any action taken or refrained from as a result of what is said. The views expressed are not necessarily those of the presenter or of Smith & Williamson or any of its affiliates. No reproduction of this podcast may be made in whole or in part for professional or recreational purposes. No action should be taken based on this podcast we accept no liability if we change your views on any of the subjects mentioned. Copyright Smith & Williamson Holdings Limited.